Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everybody, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that the fight that we're facing is not about right versus left, and it's not about Republicans versus Democrats. It's about democracy versus authoritarianism, and never, ever let anybody tell you different. The next 18 months will be the most crucial months in American political history since 1860. Think about that, gang. Now is the time to get involved. Go to jointheunion.us and sign up to be part of the pro-democracy army that will lead us to victory next year. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Tim Miller, writer for The Bulwark, co-host of The Next Level Podcast, wherever podcasts are found, author of the New York Times bestselling Why We Did It, and political analyst for MSNBC. Prior to his time at The Bulwark, Tim was political director for Republican Voters Against Trump, communications director for the Jeb 2016 presidential campaign, and spokesman for the Republican National Committee. Today, he is coming to us from the one, the only, the big easy, New Orleans, Louisiana. Tim, welcome back. Reed, good to be with you again, man. That's quite the intro. I love that. The full bio. Go and subscribe to the Next Level podcast. Next thing you know, you're going to be just plugging me, plugging all my stuff. When this is over, I hope to be the Tim Miller Publicist podcast, where all (laughs) I do is find out where it is you are and what it is you're doing, and I let the world know about it. I need somebody to do that. (laughs) My mother needs to know when I'm going to be on the tube next. Exactly. Yes, as my parents do, but it's always too late in the evening for them. So, (laughs) So, Tim, welcome back. It's been a while. So, in many ways, since the last time we spoke was last summer, right when your book was coming out, everything has changed and nothing has changed. We're still in crazy land. Donald Trump is still around and still, in my mind anyway, likely to be the Republican uh, nominee next year. The Republican Party is what we knew of it is, I think, gone, right? It's like one of those insects that something else eats from the inside out. But let me ask you this. We were talking right before we went live that you spend a fair amount of time in New York and D.C., the Acela Corridor, we'll call it. What is it about that? And I know that this is an age-old problem, right? I'm sure they had it in Rome. I'm sure they had it everywhere else in London. What is it about that bubble, that stretch of train track that makes it so hard for folks to understand the world as we know it, the world as we see it, and that like this is not 2015 all over again? Yeah, that's a good question. And I am really conscious of my own potential for getting stuck in a bubble. Right. I feel like that happened to me in 2016. I genuinely did not think Donald Trump could win in 2016. It's a big part of what I got into in the book. And it's because I was in that bubble, right? Like the types of Republicans that I were around were the ones that were whispering, I might not vote for him. I'm going to write in, you know, Ronald Reagan or whatever. And I didn't kind of see what was happening in the rest of America. And I've been really guarding against that and trying to travel as much as I can in the interim and try to at least engage, I suffer so you people don't have to, through MAGA media and just kind of see what kind of stuff these folks are consuming. That's why I say along with those focus groups at the Bulwark. And 
I just think that there is this desire to put the head in the sand in these, you know, what your colleague Stuart Stevens likes to call the pockets of prosperity, right? And they don't want to believe just how lost and how gone the Republican Party is, you know, because the Republican Party is in their life, in the donor class, in the lobbyist class, like they're still kind of normal. They're just going along with the crazy. And so it's hard for them to understand just, you know, how far off the tracks the train has gotten. And I think that particularly if you're talking about your Wall Street Journal Republican types, I was on a panel with Carl Rove about a month ago, and like just the wish casting, man, God love him. He thinks we're going back to compassionate conservatism any day now. And, and I think it's because the people that he's around are the same people from then. You know, I said to him, I was like, Carl, would you even go to a Trump rally? I don't think you'd be safe. I don't think Carl Rove would be safe at a Trump rally. Like, that's crazy to say, right? Like, that's how much things have really changed in the real world. And if you listen to MAGA media, if you go to the events, which I had to suffer through, going to Carrie Lake's events and these kinds of things, you see how much things have changed. And you see like that this party, that there's no going back, right? That maybe there's a slight tack towards normalcy, the slightest, but it's not going anywhere near, you know, what we saw in 2015 in the pre-Trump era. Well, and I think too, that those tacks tend to be, and I think that's a great way to describe it. Those tacks tend to be hyper-tactical in nature, which is they do it because they feel like, oh gosh, we actually got caught this time. We got to make this move back here until nobody's paying attention again, then we'll just get right back to crazy, the crazy path we were on. We saw it right after the election. I mean, this is the tack that you really saw, right? For like one month, right after the election, a lot of people, even voters, MAGA elites, but even voters started to be like, you know, we didn't really do as well as we thought. Like this is, uh, I guess, a little bit of a wake up call. Maybe Donald Trump's hurting us a little bit. We still love him. We still love him. But maybe we may should start looking around. But it only took, what, another two months, another three months for everything to snap right back to where it was before the election, you know, because at the gut level, at the id, what the voters want is the crazy. It's the lib owning. And did you see this YouGov poll that came out? I want to pull this up here. This is so good. 2024 Republican nomination. Do you prefer a candidate who? The top answers for likely GOP primary voters. Number one, challenges woke ideas. Number two, opposes any gun restrictions. Number three, says Trump won in 2020. Number four, makes liberals angry. That's what these people want, right? This is a bottom-up issue. Like They want loony stuff that's not true, that's making us unsafe, and that triggers their enemies. And so that's the kind of politicians they're going to get. Well, and that's what they're doing, right? And we see that in, let's just say in Texas, right? So in just north of Houston the other night, a man, you know, his neighbors asked him to stop popping off his AR-15 in his backyard in the middle of the night because obviously it's a very loud weapon. And his response is not to say, you know what, you're right, I'm sorry about that. It's to, I'm sure, call them every name in the book and then walk over and shoot four of them, including an eight-year-old who who is now dead. But in the reaction to that, Tim, is also it's not enough just to have the tragedy. Then you have Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, note that the people killed were illegal immigrants. It wasn't enough that these people, some of them have lost their lives. Anybody who survived, their lives are shattered. This guy's I don't know if he's still on the run, but he was. But he had to literally add insult to lethal injury. It's just a moral rot. I think that there's just this desire within us in this tribal time, like after one of these tragedies, to be like, oh, I hope the killer was from the other tribe, right? Like, is there any bigger moral rot than that instinct? You know, but that is just, that's the where we've gotten in this country. And when you see that, like that level, which is, you know, 
kind of this debasement of this idea that we're all Americans together. You see that a little bit on both sides, right? And you definitely see it with Greg Abbott now after the shooting, citing the shooter, you know, being, you know, he said he would say illegal. To go then to the next level and be like to try to point a finger at the eight-year-old that died, to be like that eight-year-old was also illegal. Just the level of cruelty associated with that is just there is no comparison. There is no equivalent to what is happening among other folks. It is so gross. And this rot just goes so deep. Like the gun culture stuff, you know, the one, did you see the story? The other one that really grabbed me recently about the two guys in Florida that had their little girls in the back of the car and they had a road rage incident and they both started firing at each other. And the two girls, neither of them died, thank God, but they both got hit. It's just like, this is the culture that we are cultivating. And like you just see example after example, and there's no accountability to look at that poll and see, oh, after all of this, after what we've seen in Uvalde, and you could just go on and on to then say, oh, 66% of Republican voters want no restrictions, nothing. And they want the response to these things to be, oh, we need dork. Did you see the other thing in Texas that Greg Abbott's doing? He's not just demonizing illegal immigrants. It's like, oh, we need to harden the schools and we need kindergarten teachers, you know, to be trained with weapons. And like, this is their response. It's madness. Like, it's so far afield from what a rational response would be. So let me ask you two questions. The first is people like we used to be. I'm not a Republican anymore. I don't I don't know. Me neither. Tim. Okay, so you aren't either. But like guys like us, there are still our, I don't know if they're still friends, former colleagues who have been in the middle of all this and continue to profit well off of it. You know, at first, Tim, it was, look, guys, I got 20 people on staff, right? I got a business to run. Like, this is what I do. I heard that one. Right. In, in your book, you describe that, right? Look, he's a Republican. I'm a Republican. This is where the party is, where the party is I am. You know, we even asked this question right before the 2020 election, which is, if Trump loses and refuses to concede, are you going to cross the river with him? And they all did. So were these people all that bad? Or is it just like, you know, the moral equivalency of this stuff? Just, you know, Ann Applebaum had a, a great piece years ago about how everybody can find their own way to this place, which is, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. I mean, what do you think? Well, I ended the book purposefully with, a line about how, you know, the road that got to us to this place is long and it seems as if it's going to go on forever. And I ended it there on purpose because I saw this coming, right? Like we saw all of these rationalizations that these men and women used to justify Trump. They all continue to be operative now, right? Like every, there's this sense after January 6th that people are like, final straw, final straw. And I, I didn't think so. You know, that night on the board podcast, I was like, I think these guys are going to be back there by Valentine's Day. And everybody's like, why? That's crazy. He's done. It's over. It's finally over. And I was like, no, these same reasons, whether it's money, whether it's hatred of the left, whether it's proximity to power, wanting to be in the mix, they all continued to be operative even after we saw the horribles of Trump before our eyes with the Capitol being sieged. And also, it's easy to rationalize this sort of stuff. Did you see the J-Mart column from this week in Politico? about how these guys are starting to come to terms with Trump already. So good. And he quotes one of these anonymous assholes, you know, saying, you know, we might just need to go down to the basement for five more years. And I was like, you've been in the basement already yeah. for eight <laughs> years. You've been, yeah. yeah, you've been in the basement already. Like, you're still there. And, and, and they're just like, oh, we're going to write off a decade. People don't, they don't appreciate, I think, recognize the long-term, you know, damage that's being wrought by this and their justifications 
the moral judgment you can make on them, I think, is just worse and worse by the year. I mean, it's one of those things where, like, I saw, you and me saw it clearly in 2016, but at least you could understand their rationalizations. At least you could understand how they got there. How you can continue to do it in the face of what we've seen from Donald Trump, it's mind-boggling. Well, and, you know, at any given moment, and I'd love to get your sense of this, as you have traveled, as you said, you have traveled the country and you have talked to these folks, seen folks, which is, you know, I feel like sometime probably about a year ago, and maybe you might have a better sense of it, Tim, that MAGA as a movement or ultra MAGA actually got past Trump. It actually sped ahead of him. And now it's sort of a race to see who can be in front, whether or not it's his crazy or their crazy, or if it's one, you know, crazy train that's all hooked up together. But did you get that sense? Do you still get that sense that, you know, the zombies that came out of the woods, they're in charge now? I mean, look, Marjorie Taylor Greene's the most powerful person in the Republican House conference. Yeah, and I think he's catching back up to them. In a weird way, I would say that the crazy train was always in front of Trump. Like Trump has a couple of specific pathologies that are unique to him, right? Like his Russophilia, this Putin, this love of dictators, like his just insane levels of narcissism. You know, there's certain things that are unique to Trump that he's always been like this. He's always been xenophobic. But like on a lot of these issues, it was always bottom up stuff. Like he'd get these tweets that Dan Scavino, the caddy, would elevate to the Trump feed and then Trump would riff on what people liked. You know what I mean? Like the Muslim ban, the wall, that all like came bottom up and he saw the crowd liked it and he riffed on it. And I think you saw that when I went to the Turning Point USA conference over Christmas a couple months ago now, and you could just feel like the intense sense of persecution around January 6th. And you could hear from the people when you're talking to them and feeling that they're persecuted by the government and also their COVID denialism stuff. And Trump was kind of behind them on that and has now been catching up, you know, to get where, quote unquote, his people are. So in a lot of ways, it's been the tail chasing the dog and Trump's just kind of been their vehicle. But you can see in these numbers now that that's where the Republican voters are and they're the tail wagging the dog. So I want to get to the Putins of the world in a second, but I want to talk about Republicans like we used to be in your travels. Have you met any of them? Do they exist? Do you think there are more of them now than there were, say, in 2016? I, I mean, I always say you go back to 2016, Tim, you know, look, I had confirmation bias out the wazoo, right? I was just totally in the bunker for the fact that Hillary was going to win. Retrospectively, you could say, OK, I can now understand that there were Republicans who were just never going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Like it, she was mythological. But now they've had, as you pointed out, almost eight years to see this guy both in office and in action. Do you think that span of Republican voters that, you know, maybe they're not never Trump, maybe they're anti-Trump or uh, enough of Trump. Do you think that that band of voters has increased? They exist, but they're smaller, right? Because some of us have left. And you can, I just, anyone can see this in their everyday lives. Like I try to use my high school buddies and like their spouses, you know, because they're non-political as my marker for this. And almost all of them voted for W in 2004. Not all of them, but almost all of them. And almost all of them voted for Joe Biden, right? And when I went to, I went to Georgia last year in the fall to cover this phenomenon of the Kemp Warnock voter. And there was a decent number of people, right? These Atlanta suburbs, they're still, they were are the types of Republicans we used to be. They don't have as much TDS as us. They haven't been quite as radicalized as we have because they don't pay attention as much, right? They're bankers or whatever. They don't, they're not reading Breitbart. They don't know how crazy the crazy is. And so, and a lot of those folks still kind of consider themselves Republicans in their gut. And they voted for Brian Kemp, but they couldn't get there for Herschel Walker. They couldn't get there for Donald Trump. 
And they're probably not going to vote in the Republican primary. Like maybe if there was a competitive Republican primary where a Nikki Haley or a Asa Hutchinson seemed competitive, maybe they would turn out. But they're not that Republican anymore. They're uh, vestigially Republican, you know, but they're not active. Meanwhile, this whole new group of Trumpers that were like Perot voters have come into the party and are super active, right? And are taking over the party organization. So the power dynamic is off. And if you just look at that same YouGov poll I mentioned earlier, I think it is a good show. It's about a quarter of the party would rather move on from Trump. About a quarter of the party are MAGA cultists. And the big middle of the party like Trump and are just kind of waiting to see. But they like him, you know, and that's the heart of the party. And the people that don't like Trump, but still are like, oh, I'm for small government. Yeah, there's some of them, but they're smaller than they were before. We lost before, right? And, And their power is weakened. Do you think that the big middle, as I'll call them, the 50 percent, do you think they like Trump because he is this sort of own the lib thing? Do you think they like him because he's entertaining? Do you think that some of them say, oh, you know, you know, I really like the tweets, but I like the policy. Like what keeps them attached to him? Number one, shared enemies. And it's not always the same enemy for every person, right? Like, you know, it might be a very passionate about illegal immigration. It might just be they hate the liberals in their lives. It might be the quote unquote woke stuff. It might be the elites on the coasts, right? Like shared enemies at a gut level, Trump is there for them. And, and it's kind of this tribal signifier. And so I think that a lot of them still kind of instinctually have some of those traditional Republican values on balance, think government should be smaller on balance, but like that is not what is motivating them. Like what is motivating them is this fight against what they see as the changing country, the changing mores on gender and sexuality, the changing demographics. There's an undercurrent of bigotry there. Not every person, right? And sometimes it's not bigotry, really. It's just this discomfort, this feeling that they're losing the country, which, you know, in some cases might be bigotry, in some cases might just be old folks like like being set in their ways, you know? And so that is the core element. I think that they also liked some of his policies. I think that they like where the party is going. You know, Sarah Longwell wrote a great Bulwark article recently called Donald Trump was year zero because they liked the way that he changed the party, right? Like they might've liked tax cuts and some of that Reagan and Bush stuff on balance, but they more like the nationalism, the isolationism. They don't wanna be globalists. They don't want free trade. They don't want people coming into the country, right? Like that pivot, they like where Trump was on that directionally. They might not care about the specifics about every issue. Right, well, and with him, you know, he always provides a panoply of people he doesn't like, and he's perfectly willing to say bad things about publicly. So to your point about finding a common enemy, if you want a common enemy, Donald's probably got one for you. Yeah, he's got a buffet. <laughs> you can a buffet is a much better way to put it, a buffet of common enemies. So let's talk about the Republican primary such as it is. Obviously, uh, there was a recent survey out, um, I think even last night, that showed Trump's beating DeSantis about the head and neck. Not surprisingly, he's also a terrible candidate, so that probably has something to do with it. But do you think that this primary, such as it is again, gets to Iowa? Do you think that some of these candidates actually appear in the caucus next to Donald Trump in January? I think that the conventional wisdom on DeSantis is just a little bit overbaked. I have agreed with what you've been saying all along, Reed and others, that instinctually it just doesn't feel like he's got it right like and we've seen that obviously in front of our eyes with his eyes ah, like silly facial reactions at all the DeSantis and I like I wrote an article this week about how he has this Elizabeth Warrenism now don't get mad at me Elizabeth Warren fans out there but like just like he's too online he cares too much like about what these things at the base 
thinks that he thinks that the base cares about but really it's just like a tiny percentage of like super online weirdos who care about this sort of thing and he's like wrapped around the axle on it so i just think he's made a lot of mistakes the last month that said i think he's still got a good elevator pitch he won trump lost now a lot of people think trump won so that's a big problem for the elevator pitch but he won trump lost he won big he fought the fauci he was on the right side of covid if he can get his North Star back there and if Trump stumbles, I don't think it's impossible. I think Trump is a clear favorite right now, but I think that DeSantis gets in the race because if he doesn't, this is his, his chance is over. It's like you don't see any of the people that Trump embarrassed last time running this time because he took their dignity and their will. Maybe Chris Christie, but of course he doesn't have any dignity or will to begin with. So. Exactly. <laughs> Good point. But so, you know, Ted Cruz, Marco, you don't, Jeb, you don't see them running again. Like once you've gotten beaten by Trump, it's over. So. DeSantis would be even more embarrassing because he'd have gotten defeated by Trump before even getting in the race. So I, I think he's got a lot of donors in his ear telling him to run. I think he knows it's his chance. He's got a lot of consultants who see this as a gravy train, even if a gravy it, train. Look, they, there's a new condo in Destin for these guys, right? Totally. Exactly. Redneck Riviera is going to have a lot, you know, a lot of room for DeSantis Super PAC admin, right? So I think that he gets in. I think that he probably makes it, Tyler. Maybe not. But that big middle that I talked about, they're still gettable. It's not over, right? Like if you look at that poll, Trump's only got a hard, it's probably really more like a third, you know, than a quarter, but that's still not enough, right? Like he's still got to get to 45 and there's still a big middle that likes him, but might be ready to move on if they can be convinced that they have a better chance winning with another horse. The problem is DeSantis's performance has been so bad. It's hard to convince people he's the better horse when he looks so easily pushed around, you know? And so this is kind of this, double bind that DeSantis is stuck in that is going to be hard to get out of. But I'm not ready to bury him yet. And I think there'll probably be some token candidates that want to keep their hat in the ring. So I think that they'll end up being some coxes and primaries. But Trump's a clear favorite right now. Yeah. And, you know, you've got Nikki Haley out there who, you know, she's not running the Jeb 15 campaign. She's running the George W 99 campaign. And I think that's one question, too, is all the events you've gone to, the one thing that Trump provides, and maybe Carrie Lake provides this, and maybe Green provides it too, is they put on a show. They are a veritable butcher's counter up there at the podium, just throwing as much red meat at the crowd as they possibly can. Nikki, like anytime I see video of her, it's like she's running in a race in a world that doesn't exist. She tries to do the entertaining thing, you know, with the high heel and I'm going to kick forward I, at CPAC. I thought this was the most telling little anecdote about Nikki's campaign. She does these remarks that are well-intentioned, I think, maybe not, but it's a nice notion that like, oh, Republicans aren't really sexist and it's, you know, it's trying to do the, oh, the Democrats are because of trans sports and blah, blah. Anyway, So she's trying to do this thing about girl power, conservative woman power, and we got to pull ourselves up from our bootstraps and Republicans aren't sexist. The Democrats are the sexist one. And like during this rant, somebody like literally yells, shut up, you C word, right? oh, like some MAGA person in the crowd. And I'm just like, oh, don't God. think you're right, actually, Nikki. I know that you're trying to get people to feel that way and push people to their better angels on this front. But like, that's not where the party is. So I don't know what she's doing. Is she hoping that she just happens to be standing there holding the bag if Trump goes to jail? Does she want to be his VP? Does she not know what else to do with her life? I don't have a great answer to that. I would like to get out and kind of watch it firsthand, though that might be a little sad. But I've been to some sad events. I was at work in a lot of losing campaigns. So, you know, I have a little bit of empathy for people going hosting sad campaigns. No, look, I was in Charleston the night that Jeb 
dropped out, right? I was in the back of the room and I've had that feeling. It's one of his best did. speeches, right, his concession well, speech. <laughs> it's like, remember after the 1996 campaign and uh, Bob Dole went on Saturday Night Live and, and did a really good job. And everybody's like, well, where was this Bob Dole? Like, well, when you're running for president, the weight of the world is on your shoulders. When you are no longer have to worry about that and you can go on SNL and people write jokes for you, it's a little bit easier. So let me ask you this, because you mentioned Vladimir Putin. So you know, I was thinking about this is that, you know, just go with me here that we make the assumption that Trump is the 2024 Republican nominee. You know, I think sometimes you talk about getting in a bubbler and being insular. You know, there are some pretty bad dudes in the world who desperately want Trump back. Putin at the top of that list. I assume that the crown prince of Saudi Arabia is probably on that list. The Emiratis are probably on that list. I don't know if the Iranians are, but you could make an argument that anything that's bad for America, they see as good for them. I assume the Chinese would like to have Trump back. Like, this is a rogues gallery of people. And here's the thing, Tim, is that we have seen in the past that they are willing to do things to try and sway an American election. So, I mean, what do you think? Whew, that's a big question. There's a lot there. Uh, on the election side, I do worry about that. How does that look? In what form does it take? You know, a lot of times I feel like people are fighting the last battle. I worry a lot about what's happening on these other kind of apps that aren't visible to the elite media, right? Like we saw last time, it's like, oh, we were focused really on, on how they acted on Twitter and Facebook. And it's like, eh, okay, but you can see that a lot. Like TikTok, you know, which I'm reluctantly on to stay in touch with the youth is a lot more invisible. You know, like every once in a while, I'll be scrolling through my For You page and you see some video of like total conspiracy laden nonsense and it has a gazillion likes and nobody in the media. See, there's no accountability on this. Like there's a whole now, thank goodness, like we've built a whole group of people that monitor Twitter now and monitor Facebook and look for this kind of. So there are all these other apps now. And, you know, who knows with the AI, how quickly AI is developing, probably not quickly enough for these like foreign hacks to do anything well i think they'll try but it'll probably be pretty easy to see through um this time probably bigger worry for 2028 so i'm worried about that and then just the actual impact i mean look if you're putin you know it's hard to put your finger on this and i'm not a military expert but i just think this is obviously true at least at the top level why would you back off at all in ukraine until 2025 like no matter how many losses you're taking no matter how bad it's going like trump is this light at the end of the tunnel for him conceivably, right? And Ukraine, then it's just like, you know, who knows, maybe he was going to ride it out to the end anyway. But, you know, if it looked like we had a, a united front in this country about supporting Ukraine, like think about what that does for the leverage that we have, you know, whether that's in his surrender or however that conflict comes to an end versus the lack of leverage we have if he knows that, well, you know, well, let's just see how things go. I might get my buddy in there that'll pull out. You know, if we can just ride this thing out another 18 months. You know, that's the thing that's a little bit concerning is, you know, that the Republican Party used to be the party of national security, you know, a muscular and, you know, what we hoped was a moral foreign policy, Tim, you know, Ronald Reagan standing at the Berlin Wall talking to Mikhail Gorbachev, calling the, the Soviet Union right after they shot down the Korean Airlines jet, you know, the evil empire. It's interesting that there are so many older Republican voters who are OK with that sort of hagiography of Vladimir Putin or, of you know, gee, he's a good looking guy, right? This just seems to be antithetical to people who, you know, the baby boom generation, right? Their parents fought 
my grandparents, your grandparents, right? It was the Great Depression and World War II and then the Cold War, right? They remember we all grew up in the Cold War. We we grew up in the Cold War um, and they were the bad guys and they've really never been good guys, not since we can remember. And so it's just interesting to me that so much of the Republican Party, especially its older voters, seem to be OK with that. Yeah, it was interesting. In 16, Trump did the worst, actually, with the oldest, greatest generation, best silent generation kind of uh, types, and then did better as you went down, which kind of makes sense, and then did terrible again at the bottom end of the scale. And so a lot of those folks have died in the last eight years, um, sadly, with just COVID and just natural actuarial tables. So you're getting to fewer and fewer people that actually fought, actually saw this stuff firsthand. That said, I, you know, and then you get into a generation Vietnam and Iraq. And I think that obviously, I, you know, being of the Bush kind of wing of the party, you have to admit that like the Iraq debacle like played a role in this, right? Like in changing some of these folks' views about like what our role should be, but still changing the views enough to make them comfortable with like Putin love, with just sucking out to Vladimir Putin and believing him over our own security forces, believing him over, you know, Zelensky and, and the folks that are being invaded and are fighting for freedom over there. That is tough to swallow. And just this dissonance was shown. I don't know. Did you see McCarthy yesterday? McCarthy did the only good thing he's ever he's done in like a decade yesterday where he was where he had it just hurts coming out of my mouth praise for Kevin McCarthy, but you have to do it. He had moral clarity in that answer. For one minute. It's like Darth Vader, right? There was a little bit of good left in the back of him, right? Yeah, it's like he, he exhumed it from the back of his brain. And it was like, no, you know, and he pointed at the Russian reporter. It's like what your country did, right? Like it's you. We can see right and wrong here. And so you can tell that instinct is still there. It's just that Donald Trump is encouraging people to cultivate their inner dark side, to beat the Star Wars metaphor to death. And a lot of folks are just going along with it. And obviously, we're not going to see that same moral clarity from Kevin McCarthy when he comes back here the next time Donald Trump is siding with that Russian reporter, you know, and advancing Russian propaganda. You know, I guess that, you know, his his moral lines end at the water's edge on the other side of the water's edge on our side of the water. You know, he'll go along with it. Right. All right. So what is one thing that you're sort of taking note of that maybe to your point about us needing to get outside our bubble. What What is one thing you're seeing and hearing out there that maybe the folks watching and listening haven't heard? I think that within that Republican base audience, I want to go back to that big middle, which I think is the key. I do think this is the key group. And if you listened to them talk about the 2024 primary from November up and through about February, like, they were very conflicted about it, very conflicted, right? Like they still had this instinctual like of Trump, but you know, this is not the group that believes that the machines, you know, <laughs> that Hugo Chavez was inside the machines. This is not the Mike Lindell group, right? Like this is the group that watches Fox and Friends and Brett Baer, right? And so like they might say to a pollster that the election was stolen, but they're saying it more in like this ephemeral way of like, oh, the Democrats always do some dirty tricks. Right. Or we all know, look, he knows he lost. We all know he lost, but he's just saying it. Yeah, yeah, that group. Like, so that group of people, like, they very much could have been pushed off of Trump. And it was there. It was there. And maybe it wasn't realistic. Maybe in the heat of a campaign, DeSantis didn't, wasn't capable of it. But, like, had the Fox hosts, had the Republican leaders, had there been a concerted effort to just kind of do the gold watch as strategy with Trump and say, hey, we appreciate your work here. Nice job building one third of the wall. 
why don't you go hang out in Mar-a-Lago and, uh, you know, send some bleats on your fake social media site. And, and we appreciate everything. We'll see you at the convention. It might have worked. Like there, there are more of those folks out there than you'd think. The problem is that like they're getting all of the wrong signals, you know, both from DeSantis, from the Fox media, and you see them drifting back into his arms. And I, and I think that like understanding that group, we always, there's always this focus on the always Trumper freaks or, you know, the Mitch McConnell squishes, you know, who are, whose manhoods we hold cheap because of their like moral just depravity in going along with this because we know they know better. But it's that big middle of people that I think is the key to understanding what's happening with the party. And, you know, here's one example. I went to the Cary Lake event in Arizona and I went to a Dr. Oz event the next day. And the types of folks that were there are meaningfully different. Dr. Oz event felt kind of like a Mitt Romney event with like a little bit of like a couple crazy cherries on top. And I feel like the people that were showing up to campaign events in, in the midterms like could have been nudged towards more productive people if the leaders and the media figures in the right were doing so. But they weren't. And so instead they get nudged over the Cary Lake direction, right? And, and I think that like that incentive structure you know, and the fact that a lot of Republican voters are that malleable, I think, is underappreciated. Do you think that the snake eats its own tail on this? Could the Republicans push themselves so far towards crazy town that even in a place like Washington three out in southwest Washington, where it's a plus nine Republican district, a moderate Democrat beats a crazy MAGA Joe Kent? Yes, I do. But we're so polarized. This is the reason why I think we're f really far away from Republican reform. What was the most recent example of a party getting their ass beaten and then reforming? It was the Democrats in 92. They've gotten annihilated three straight elections. Annihilated. Like not even anywhere in the ballpark of close. And now that's not the equivalent for Republicans right now. Most Republican voters think they won in 2020, right? Like in 2022, they lost, but they still won the House, right? We're so polarized right now that we're not like near a place where Joe Biden is winning you know, Kentucky or Tennessee. Right. I mean, remember, Obama won Indiana in 2008. Right. And so and that's what we're talking about in 88. I mean, George H.W. Bush was winning everywhere. So I don't know. Texas is maybe gettable at some point. It's like Texas is your, as I think, your linchpin, right? If you look at Texas and it's like, we're going to learn a lot in 2024. I mean, what Greg Abbott has done, five-week abortion ban with bounties, just this insane gun legislation and, and about what we're going to do to keep our kids safe in schools. You know, just very far right policies across the board on all of these cultural issues. You know, having well, Colin Allred there as a Democratic nominee is a really former football player. I had him on the Next Level podcast. Go listen to that interview if you haven't, because he's like such a normal guy. If like, Colin Allred cannot win, right, in Texas, and if Joe Biden cannot win after all of these ex just unimaginably extreme legislation 10 years ago, you know, gets passed on these cultural issues. Then it's like, you know, we're just dug in very deep. That is a place to look at. Like if Texas were to fall, might that be enough for some of those persuadable Republicans in the middle to be like, okay, like we went too overboard, right? You're never getting that always Trump group. That always Trump group is gone forever. And that's like a whole nother cultural problem to deal with that those people are going to be in our society going forward, right? But how many can you continue to cleave off from that other side? I think that's the question ahead. And I do think that they're cleavable if the snake eats its own tail, but I'm not certain about that. 
it's a no it's a known unknown what's the rummy it's a known unknown you know about whether enough of them are cleavable to have a place like texas drop last question because we spend a lot of time thinking about the bad things what's something that gets you up in the morning and gives you a little bit of hope so i guess i just have to say that Georgia and Arizona. I got to spend time both those places. Like those were both clear red states, and I've had big movements. I, I, Katie Hobbs. I, I guess you're, you asked me for a positive thing. I'm about to say a negative thing, but I'm going to get to the positive. I promise. Katie Hobbs ran a horrible campaign. Like really not good. Okay, nice person. Nothing against her personally. As a candidate, her skills were just not there. She won because there was in Arizona a plurality of people that just said no. I will not go with you to this place. And I met with a guy who's on the city council in Maricopa County, and he's still a Republican. He's the type of Republican that we used to be. And he won in Maricopa County, Bill Galvin, and he won a county supervisor seat in a district that Lake lost double digits. And it was because he just said, "Ah, I think the election was fair. You know, I'm concerned about regular, normal person issues in Maricopa County, like tax base and property taxes and crime, whatever normal people are worried about in in their normal lives. He won across the board, Fincham, Masters, Hamaday, Lake, lost. And to me, you look at that and you see that over time, like that group, this coalition of the decent, of the normal, like it's not as much as I'd want, but it's growing. And if you can create a firewall you know, through states like Georgia and Arizona, where the craziest of the crazy can't win, their math gets really, really hard, really, really, really hard. And I think that's the most encouraging thing, you know, that I've seen in a while, to be honest. And if you want to be part of that pro-democracy coalition, go to jointheunion.us and sign up everywhere around the country, but especially if you're in places like Arizona and Georgia. Tim, before we let you go, where can our viewers today and our listeners find you online and where can they find your writing everywhere baby i'm a content machine reed um i'm writing at the bulwark i'm podcasting on the board podcast with charlie sykes on fridays the next level podcast on wednesdays i interview cool people on sundays and you know i'm on instagram we're redditing at the bulwark you know twitter might collapse right so i'm trying to be multi-platform reed it's with twitter collapsing so you know come hang out with me at those places i'm on msnbc for time to time and maybe i'll be back on the circus this fall but uh we'll see how it goes i appreciate you having me reed of course and as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Tim Miller, thanks for joining me today. And everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.